Welcome to the weekly deep dive podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in my basement studio, as you may have guessed, without Nate the Great Piper. He is uh, down feeling sick this week, so hopefully he feels better and can join us next week. Uh, This week we're going to be talking about Doctrine and Covenants, sections 125 through 128. Uh, a great little section of scripture, but before we get in there, I just wanted to do a quick shout out to Mark Hare. He's got a, an online Facebook resource for those that teach Come Follow Me or just want to know more about Come Follow Me. He pulls together a lot of the free resources, the podcasts, uh, commentators, uh, contributors, people that have something to say, and brings them into a Facebook group called Come Follow Me Live. And this week he was kind enough to invite Nate and I to to film a segment, if you will, talking about our podcast. So for those of you who have never seen Nate or I and want to see the faces behind the voices, uh, jump on Facebook, check out Mark Hare's site, Come Follow Me Live, and uh, look at our, our live video Nate and I did talking about this podcast. Kind of the, the lane we swim in, I suppose. Uh, a few things that we took away from the Come Follow Me lesson this week and uh, a plug from Mark. So thank you, Mark, for doing that for us. Uh, check out his check out his Facebook site and see if there's some resources there that you can pull together and help you in your discovery and learning from the Come Follow Me content. Also, Nate and I have taught school for a number of years, him at the University, uh, Utah Valley University, and, and I taught at Liahona Preparatory Academy. Uh, there's one big difference between teaching school, I think, and, uh, and podcasting. In school, when you're in front of a live audience, you're able to kind of read and engage the reaction of your students to understand how engaging it is and how they're doing, how much they're comprehending, and, and if you're losing them altogether. In the podcast, Nate kind of helps me in being my audience, if you will. It gives me someone to talk to, at least. But for the most part, we're, we're talking to mics and not able to, to discuss and engage in um, a, a good conversation with our audience. That's, that's one thing that I miss uh, most about doing this as opposed to teaching. And so we, we have created a couple of avenues for you guys to reach out and, and engage with us and give us a little bit of feedback about how things are going. Uh, one of which is our email, hi at weeklydeepdive.com. And, and that's pretty easy to remember. Hi, just H-I at weeklydeepdive.com. Also on our, on our website, addoneducation.com. They, we have a link for podcasts, and every episode or every show has its own page. At the bottom of the page, there is a section for comments. If you guys had something that you wanted to discuss, something that you learned, or something that you like or didn't like about the show, feel free to leave comments there and give us the opportunity to have more of a discussion with you. So if, if, if there's anything that, that I don't like so much about the podcast is the one-way nature of the conversation and anything I could do to engage with you guys in more of a two-way discussion would be something that I would thoroughly enjoy, and I'm sure Nate would enjoy also. Let us know your comments, your thoughts, uh, questions that you have after listening to an episode, uh, things that you've never heard of before, or something that you learned new. Maybe uh, some of your favorite episodes, maybe the episodes you didn't like. And as we're starting to ramp down at the end of this year with Doctrine and Covenants and uh, ramping up, preparing for Old Testament next year, let us know some of the things that you liked about this show that you'd like us to do more of, or maybe some of the things in this show that you didn't like so much that you'd like us to see kind of cool down and, and do a little bit less of. So give us your feedback. Help us make this show better and help us to provide more engaging content for you. Um, I, I'd say one of the big aims of what we're trying to do, the tagline for add-on education, is learning worth the journey. Uh, we, we do try to take our audience, our listeners, and, and those who engage on a journey, if you will, to learn and discover things that are a little bit off the beaten path, not something that you hear in Sunday school or gospel doctrine every week, uh, but something maybe you've never thought of before. That's that's the goal. That's kind of the the, the direction that that we're pushing with this. Let, let us know if we're getting there. Let us know 
how this podcast has been learning worth the journey, if it's been that, or if you think we need to do things a little bit different to try to to hit that stride. If you don't mind, we'd love to hear from you guys. And, and I'd love to engage you guys as well. Um, and on that note, if, if anyone's interested, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there, uh, with all of the talking about the Missouri period of time and the saints and what they went through in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, I, I've decided I am going to take my family out to Missouri in June next year, 2022, uh, probably the, the middle to late June, and we're going to do kind of a church history tour, if you will. So we're going to spend a week out there. We're going to go look at Adamondiamen, Far West, Liberty Gel. We'll probably take a day and drive out to Nauvoo, go look at the sites out there, uh, just get kind of a feel for the area, the landscape, and appreciate some of that early church history and the heritage that that the saints came through and, and our culture, our heritage, our, our background, if you will. And if any of you would like to come out and visit Missouri with me, or if any of you are in Missouri and would like to, to meet us out there, you know, I, I think Nate's even considering going, who knows. But I, 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 I for the least, I, I'm headed out there with my family. I'd love to hang out with any of you guys that would like to share that, that piece of our history and maybe understand a little bit better and live what is Missouri out there for a week. So um, open invitation. Let me know if, if that's something you're interested in or if you'd like to come hang out with us. Shoot me an email and uh, let's, let's maybe put some plans together and, and explore some of our history together after we've been talking about it in Doctrine and Covenants. All right, uh, enough of the plug at the beginning. Um, thank you for listening. Let's dive into these sections. We are Doctor and Covenant sections 125, 126, 127, and 128. 125 and 126 at the very start are pretty small sections. And then the last two sections are letters from Joseph Smith as he is in hiding. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Beautiful sections dealing with temple work and baptism for the dead. But before we get to that, let's go into Doctrine and Covenants 125, uh, verse 1. What is the will of the Lord concerning the saints in the territory of Iowa? To give you some idea, this is right after the saints have been chased out of Missouri, and a lot of them have been settling in Iowa, and the, the Joseph Smith is asking the Lord, what is your will for them? And the Lord answers, verse 3, Let them build up a city unto me, uh, my name upon the land opposite the city of Nauvoo, and let the name of Zarahemla be upon it, named upon it. And they did establish a few towns, uh, going down to verse 4, as well as Zarahemla. Uh, it says, And let all those who come from the east and the west and the north and the south that have desires to dwell therein take up their inheritance in the same, as well as in the city of Nashville, or in the city of Nauvoo, and in all the stakes which I have appointed, saith the Lord." This is not Nashville, Tennessee. This is this is up in that corner area between Missouri, Iowa, and Illinois. And there are settlements there, not just Nauvoo, but in Iowa that the saints are starting to establish themselves in. And this uh, the town of Zarahemla, the city of Zarahemla, in 1846, was the saints migrate westward, gets kind of lost and forgotten and, and kind of desolate, turns into a ghost town. But the, there was a city on the other side of the river from Nauvoo that the saints were settling in. And to give you an idea of the impact of the saints in this area, I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit from James Shodal's Doctrine and Covenants commentary. He says, When the saints left Missouri, a large number of fugitives found their way into the territory of Iowa. Large tracts of land were purchased, and several settlements were built up in the southeastern portion of that territory. Before the arrival of the saints, there were only 2,839 inhabitants in Lee County. In 1846, the population was estimated at 12,860. So rapidly did the county develop when touched by the magic wand of Mormon industry. I love that. I love that phrase. The, the idea, let's see. So rapidly did the county develop when touched by the magic wand of Mormon industry. So they, they took this county of 2,000 and the number swelled to 12,000. And this gives us some insight uh, to the perspective of the Missourians and some of the people that, that were putting up with the, the, the saints, if you will. 
If you think about the number of the county going from 2,000 and all of a sudden people come in 10,000 more, so you're taking five times the, the county's population and adding it to, to 12,000, yeah, it's swelling in numbers. Yeah, it's growing and there's a lot of industry and there's a lot of flourishing, but you're also getting outnumbered awfully quick. Your way of life, your politics, your way of doing things becomes threatened by a larger population. Now, all of a sudden, you are the minority, and these other people are influencing what that town's going to be like, how it's going to vote, what's going to happen, because you're outnumbered. You're outvoted. You lose your voice. You lose your your political power, and you lose it to this group of strangers that are coming in with very different beliefs. Uh, something I was talking about uh, with my, my daughter a little earlier today. And Joseph Smith, when you look at the time period, we're not too far away from the Puritans. Brigham Young, a few years older than Joseph Smith, grew up in a super strict household. And in his household, they didn't listen to music. He heard the violin when he was 11 years old for the very first time. There was no dancing, no music. And when he heard the violin, he commented that he thought he was on the highway to hell for listening to violin. And not just for listening to it, but for wanting to keep listening to it. The upbringing, this, this, this Puritan, this strict, pious rigidity uh, from, from a religious perspective is very different from the saints who come in, and Joseph Smith is very jovial, and they, they have music, they have dancing, they, they dance as they're going all across the plains. They, they, they like to enjoy life, and so from a religious perspective, they're almost a little bit of a stranger and outcast, and they're coming in and changing things. And even from a non-religious perspective, so for, from, from the religious view, you have a hard time liking this new cultural influence and, and looking at it and, and wondering, you know, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, you had one person document the reason why they apostatized and left the church is because Joseph Smith, after spending some time translating in the upstairs room and, and doing the duties of a, a prophet of God, came downstairs and wrestled and played with his son Frederick. And they said, yeah, no, that's, that's not what a prophet should be doing is being all wrestling and playing with his kids. They, they had a very strict view, and it didn't fall in line with, with these, this new group of people that, that came in saying, man are that they might have joy. So you do get a lot of pushback uh, from a religious perspective that they're not being austere enough, that they're not being pious enough. But then you're also getting a lot of pushback from the, the rough, the Wild West, the, 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 the outlaw, if you will, mentality that that don't like this religious group coming in, the, the, that are fighting and rebelling against religion. So they are, they are a different group of people, and, and they're very influential. They swell in numbers very quickly. They gain a lot of influence, and, and your minority group, your majority group, quickly becomes a minority and feel unsettled with the presence of their new neighbors. So I, I don't know, just to give you a little bit of perspective about the saints and, and maybe understanding some of the pressures they were feeling from the outside as you see these numbers swelling. And where are these numbers coming from? Where are the saints coming from? And that's going to take us into Doctrine and Covenants section 126. So if we look at this section, this is a revelation given to, um, sorry, I paused here for a second as I was so I was turning the page to Doctrine and Covenants section 126. Let me let me let me just pause and say something real quick before I move into this next section. It, it, we're going to talk about Brigham Young. This is a revelation given to Brigham Young in his home about not going on missions anymore because it's time for him to focus on his family. He's served many successful missions, uh, but there is one thing that that the Lord did say in section 125 before we move away from that section. I just wanted to to, to bring up and touch on. When the Lord says, verse 1, What is the will of the Lord concerning the saints in the territory of Iowa? Verse 2, Verily thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, If those who call themselves by my name and are as saying to be my saints, if they will do my will and keep my commandments concerning them, let them gather themselves together into the places which I shall appoint unto them by my servant Joseph, and build up the cities unto my name, that they may be prepared for that which is in store in time to come. 
At this point in time, it is still very important for them to gather, that they're a place of refuge against the storm, that they can find strength in numbers, that they're... And it is causing some problems that you do have these large groups, but it is also for the protection of the saints and building up Zion until Zion is established to the point where you see later in time the emphasis changes. No longer come and gather in Zion, but Zion is everywhere. Establish Zion where you are. Um, But what I wanted to say about this section when I read that is, uh, I love how the Lord puts this. Verily thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, if those who call themselves by my name and are essaying to be my saints, if they will do my will. He, He says, not those who call themselves by my name and are saints, but those who call my name and are essaying to be my saints. And the idea of essaying is it's str- struggle. It's hard. It's not easy. You're, you're struggling to be a saint. And, and this struggle is, is real from two different standpoints. One, understanding the, the persecution that comes from being called a saint. A member of the Church of Jesus Christ at that time period when you're rejected by other religious communities, when you're rejected by, by the, the mobs and the violence and the, the, the ones that are unruly without law, that are unreligious, you're rejected by a lot of people to the point where they're chased out of their homes, their goods are stolen, they, they're, they're persecuted just for being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. So yeah, it is a struggle being a saint at that time period. But not just there. There's something more to it. And it has kind of a double meaning, as as many times the Lord's words do. Also, it's a struggle to be a saint in the idea of being sanctified. Saints means someone who is, is holy, a holy person, right? And we believe we are saints through the atonement of Jesus Christ, that covenants with him, Christ will sanctify us and make us clean, make us holy, make us his people as we covenant with him to follow him, to take his name upon us. And it is a struggle because we are not always the holiest of people. We're not always finding that right balance. We're not always making the perfect choices. We are a saying to be saints. We are struggling with ourselves to make right choices on a regular basis, to repent quickly, to learn from our mistakes, to ultimately sacrifice maybe our unselfish, excuse me, to sacrifice some of our selfish desires for what we need to do, to put our own interest down for a minute and love and take care of others or or find out what the Lord wants us to do and do that first and still find time for ourselves and taking care of what we need to do and making sure we're diligent in, in doing the small things the Lord asks us. That is a struggle. And I do not believe for a minute that anyone out there does not struggle. And and sometimes we see those struggles very visibly, and we understand that people are going through some very hard times. And the thing is, there is a real struggle for those to whom that struggle is also invisible. Where we look at somebody's life, and it might look like they've got it all figured out, or they've got it really easy. They don't have a lot of challenge. They don't have a lot of want, or a lot of struggles, or a lot of needs. But we don't see what's going on on a very deep personal level and the, the questions that they struggle with or the decisions that they struggle with or the choices that they make in private when no one's looking and understand that being a saint, regardless of who you are, your situation, your background, your wealth, or anything, is a struggle to figure out how to walk that path and how to control and tame and be the master of your own house, the master of your own soul, and and give that to Christ. So I, I like the language. I like what the Lord has done and, and, and how he says that. All right, sorry. Thanks for letting me go back and, and touch on that. Going back to why these numbers were swelling so much, where these saints are coming from, uh, section 126, verse 1, Dear and well-beloved Brigham Young, verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Brigham, it is no more required at your hand to leave your family as in times past. For your offering is acceptable to me. I have seen your labor and toil and journeys for my name. I therefore command you to send my word abroad and take a special care of your family from this time henceforth and forever. Amen. Brigham Young had served several missions. He got called to serve in the Canada mission, and he got called to serve in the eastern United States a few times, and then he was called to Great Britain. And this, this is where 
the saints are coming from. A, a large part and large droves are coming from this successful mission to Great Britain. And it's amazing. This mission, if if I had time, <laughs> we're, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, if you would like to read more about the church and, and opening up the Great Britain mission, it is well worth your read to, to research and find out what happened there. As, as Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball are approaching there and their boats riding up to the shores, there is a candidate in Great Britain who's running and his campaign slogan is, The Truth Shall Prevail. And he is unfurling that Truth Shall Prevail banner right there in front of them as they are hopping off the boat. And here is this sign from the Lord, if you will, that, that to be at the right place at the right time and to see this after everything the saints had gone through. And, and it, it's, it's another testament that the wisdom of God, His ways are not our ways, neither His paths our paths. And the wisdom of God sometimes seems like foolishness to man. At this time, the church had been struggling with the failure of the Safety Society in Kirtland, the bank. Uh, you'd lost the, the, the three witnesses. They were excommunicated. A lot of apostles and leaders in the church were struggling and leaving. At a time where the church seemed like it wasn't going to survive and was falling apart, the Lord, instead of having Heber C. Kimball, so you know, the first 12 apostles, out of the 12, there are only two that did not turn against the prophet Joseph. Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young. And at a time when enemies were growing and the apostles were, were leaving the church, the first, uh, uh, the, excuse me, the three witnesses were leaving the church and, and people deeply rooted in the church were becoming the church's enemies and, and going away and apostatizing. The church seemed like it was going to fail. It would seem like wisdom that Joseph Smith would keep Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young close to him to buoy him up, to strengthen him, and help strengthen the church so that it can survive. Instead, the Lord calls them and sends them away across the Atlantic Ocean into Great Britain on this mission. And, and from a man's perspective, or at least from my perspective, and I look at this and I think, man, how is the church going to survive? The apostles that haven't apostatized, you just sent across the ocean. The ones that supported you most, you, you just sent away. And now you're, so, you're surrounded by enemies. And people are leaving the church and doubting that he's a prophet. How is the church going to survive? It would seem like this would be the death stroke to the church. But instead of the death stroke, this saved the church. Of this mission in Great Britain, let me read from what Brigham Young wrote. He says, quote, through the mercy of God, we have gained many friends, established churches in almost every noted town and city of Great Britain, baptized between seven and 8,000 souls. Can you imagine that mission? Going over to Great Britain and, and not just baptizing a couple hundred. I mean, a couple hundred would be a pretty significant accomplishment. But they baptized between seven and 8,000 souls. Uh, going on, it says, and printed 5,000 books of Mormon, 3,000 hymn books, 2,500 volumes of the Millennial Star, and 50,000 tracts. This mission to Great Britain was critical. It cannot be overstated the influence Great Britain had on early church history. Was it not for the saints in Great Britain coming and supporting and building up the church in this time of dire need? They literally saved the church. And as Brigham Young finishes this mission, the Lord says, It is enough. I need you here now on a new role. Stay with your family. Don't go on a mission. Remember, Brigham Young is going to be replacing Joseph Smith in a few short years as leader of the church. He's gone, and he's done what he needs to do in bringing people to the church. Now he needs to learn from Joseph and, and prepare himself for the role that he is going to take next in moving the saints to the Rocky Mountains. And Great Britain was a powerful experience. 
really it helps solidify the quorum of the 12 and bring them together and, and create the strength that that quorum would need when Joseph Smith dies and the first presidency dissolves and, and the quorum of the 12 is going to lead the church for a time before they finally decide on calling an, the, the next president of the church. So the, this quorum goes through this solidifying experience. And again, this mission to Great Britain, it, it's an incredible story. Uh, feel, feel free to read a little bit more. It's a little bit outside of the scope of this episode. But they do, they, it's, not a, it's not a perfect mission without challenges. They run into problems, demonic problems, by the way. Some of the, some of the craziest stories I've ever read coming from when the, the Great Britain mission was opened by Heber C. Kimball, Brigham Young, and a few other powerful brethren as they, as they led the way to, to saving the church. Okay, that's all I'm going to say on Doctrine and Covenants 126. Let's move into the last two sections. These two sections are letters written from Joseph Smith while he is in hiding. And let's talk about what Joseph Smith is hiding from for a minute. Governor Boggs over in Missouri, who had issued the extermination order, and we understand how that all went from our last couple episodes, uh, he is no longer governor of Missouri. He's running for state senate and apparently running against some pretty violent people. Uh, anyhow, he is enjoying a, a, a peaceful night at home. Uh, his, his, his little baby is, is being rocked to sleep by a six-year-old. His, his wife's not too far away. He's sitting there in his chair with his back to the window reading the newspaper. When all of a sudden, shots get fired through the window behind his chair, and he gets shot in the back of the head twice. They pull two balls out of his skull. And, and one out of his neck. He gets shot in the neck. So he takes three, three bullets, if you will, to the upper, the, the head and neck. And, and nobody expects him to live. And in fact, Joseph Smith, uh, when he finds out later, uh, has a, writes a statement. Uh, and and I, I believe they published his obituary. And, and he'd made a statement about, about his death. So people thought that he had died from this. He hangs on between life and death for two weeks, and then miraculously, make, miraculously makes a recovery. When this happened, the person that had shot through the window dropped the, the pistol that they had used and, and fled the scene. And initially, they, they had some suspicion as to who it was, and, and so the same General Lucas from the militia that had arrested Joseph Smith, he heads up the, the, the work to go and investigate the suspect and, and he clears them. He says that he had, he had nothing to do with it. It wasn't them. And, and so they, they, they don't have a clear suspect. And things start to get uh, interesting for the saints at this point. You've got a postmaster who, who's very anti... Um, I, I, what, what, what do we say? I mean, uh, we would say anti-Mormon at the time. And we've been talking about talking, uh, replacing Mormon with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But he was very anti uh, the saints, anti the Church of Jesus Christ. And uh, he published in his paper some speculation that the Mormons were involved. And John C. Bennett, upon reading this, this, this post and this speculation about how the saints wanted him dead, and surely it was the saints that were doing this, he decides to take it a step further. And you remember John C. Bennett from last week's episode. He, he had just recently been exposed the, um, from the prophet for, for his sins. He'd been excommunicated. He, he had created a brothel there in Nauvoo next to the temple. He, he was uh, not making morally sound decisions. He was trying to corrupt as many people as he can in this practice of spiritual wifery practicing adultery and, and intimate relationships with the, as many women as he could and using his medical profession to try to hide it and, and get away with doing it. He was excommunicated from the church, meaning he loses his position as mayor of Nauvoo. He loses his station in the Nauvoo Legion and, and perhaps most hurtful to him or his desires at the time is he loses his ability to carry on with these women and use his position in the church and, and this, uh, this concept of spiritual wifery to talk them into inappropriate affairs. He's, he's losing everything that to him mattered most. 
and he latches on to this, meets with the postmaster, and, and he starts to tell stories. He says, I was with Joseph Smith when he announced to the public that, that a prophecy that Lilborn Boggs would die within a year. And then Porter Rockwell left, and he asked Joseph Smith, where has he gone? And Joseph Smith had told him, gone, he's gone to fulfill the prophecy. And so John Bennett, an, an enemy to the church at this point, upset about losing everything, is, is firing back and saying, hey, this was Joseph Smith. And the interesting thing is to say that he said this in public, yet you've got no collaborators. No one else knows of this prophecy that, that John C. Bennett is, is quoting and citing. He, he is throwing Joseph Smith under the bus without any kind of evidence or record or, or collaboration from any other witnesses. But he's publishing this and writing letters to newspapers all over the place trying to put the blame squarely on the shoulders of Joseph Smith and Porter Rockwell. So your your anti-Church of Jesus Christ people out in Missouri, they they, they start to hear these rumors and read these newspapers, and, and suspicion starts to rise, and they start to say, yeah. You know, Porter Rockwell happened to be in Independence at the time. He, he took his wife to the in-laws as she was going to deliver a baby, he 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 was in the the vicinity. It had to have been him. And as these rumors reach the governor, as they reach uh, Lilborn Boggs, Lilborn Boggs says, "Okay, I, I I think I've got enough evidence here with what people are saying," and, and he suspects Joseph Smith. So he asks the new governor to put an uh, to put together. Um, a warrant for Joseph Smith's arrest. Now, the wording of the warrant is what gets very, very important here because Lilborn Boggs is going to say that he has evidence and reason to believe that Joseph Smith is an accessory to murder. And as he gives this to the governor, the, go- the governor even puts his spin on it and applies a few more things and says, you know, Joseph Smith is a fugitive from law and an accessory to murder. And, and it's important, these two details in the affidavit, that they go to get his warrant. And, and they, they, they're, um, they, they send this affidavit to the governor of Illinois, asking him to extradite Joseph Smith to Missouri to stand trial as an accessory to an assassination attempt on, on Boggs's life. And they're appealing to the United States Constitution and, and the laws for extradition. So it's a, it's a federal law that they're appealing to to get Iowa, not Iowa, Illinois, to extradite Joseph Smith to stand trial as an accessory to the assassination attempt. So you, you can see why John Bennett plays such a, a dark role in the saint's history as soon as he's exposed and as soon as, soon as he is run out of the church and his brothels thrown over the, the edge of a canyon, he, he turns and uses that and starts writing all these letters. If, if he knew that, that Porter Rockwell was headed to go murder Boggs, why didn't he say something then? Why did he wait until the assassination attempt to open his mouth? Why wouldn't he save someone's life? If he had concerns about what Joseph Smith was doing and what the church was doing, why would he have waited months later to say anything about it after the effect? And why is it that nobody else can collaborate what, he, what Joseph Smith said if, according to Bennett, it was a public prophecy that no one else seems to know anything about? Just a lot of, just a lot of shady things here happening with Bennett. And Joseph Smith and Porter Rockwell deny it uh, vehemently. Uh, Joseph Smith, when asked if Porter Rockwell had, had shot uh, Governor Boggs, Joseph Smith replied, he's alive, isn't he? In other words, implying that if, if, if Porter Rockwell was involved, Governor Boggs wouldn't have survived the encounter. Kind of a, a funny little story that way. And Porter Rockwell approached Bennett about the, the instance and said, why, why are you telling people that I went and shot at the governor? I had nothing to do with that. And if you say that I did, I'll whip you. And, and, ba- and Bennett replies, hey, I didn't say anything about what you did or didn't do. I'm just saying what Joseph Smith said and making my inferences based on that. 
So it, he, he was, I don't know, interesting guy. But the rumor bill gets fired up, and, and you'll notice what is it that's, that's putting all of the pressure on Joseph Smith getting arrested once more and sent back to Missouri. And if you remember from the episode we did on Doctrine and Covenants section 121, what happened when he was arrested in Missouri? And he, and he calls witnesses, and they name 40 witnesses, and the state goes and arrests the witnesses so that they can't testify. There was no justice in Missouri. And if he goes back, he knows, he knows he's not going to escape it. And, and the church is going to get a bad name. He's going to get a bad name for these accusations that he had nothing to do with. There is no way he wants to go back to Missouri for something that he didn't do, and, and he thinks it's ridiculous. Well, the church had feared that this that this might happen. When they formed Nauvoo in the city charter, they created a, a writ of habeas corpus. And the habeas corpus is to determine whether or not uh, a, a, a prisoner can be jailed or can be held on, on charges, to, to, to determine is, is it a legal justified reason to detain somebody. So when the governor of Illinois approves the extradition and, and the lawmen come looking for Joseph Smith, and, it, and it's the same guy that had arrested Joseph Smith earlier, uh, shows up in Nauvoo with a warrant for Joseph Smith's arrest. Joseph Smith appeals to the Nauvoo court, the city there, because in their city charter, they, they have this writ of habeas corpus to determine if a person can be jailed, if this warrant is is legitimate, if he, if he really does need to be jailed or not. And of course, in Nauvoo, where he's got a friendly crowd in this city of the saints, they're saying, yeah, no, this this doesn't hold water. This doesn't hold merit. You, you can't hold them on this. And of course, the, the, the arresting officer is really upset about this. He takes the warrant with him to go to the, the Illinois governor to, to get this enforced and to override what's happening in, in Nauvoo. And of course, this disagratiates Nauvoo in the eyes of others as they look at it and say, you know, they're hiding people from the law. Here you've got something that happened, and rather go and face justice or, or take care of it, Nauvoo's just going to say, yeah, no, you can't arrest any, any saint. And, and you can look at the problems that this could cause. If simply if you're a member of the church, you could get away with murder. You could go and do whatever you wanted. And if somebody were to try to hold you accountable, you just go to the, the city and say, hey, writ of habeas corpus determined, do they have reason to hold me? Nope, nope, they, they're, they're cleared. According to the city, we're going to clear them. That's, that's offensive to justice. It's offensive to the Constitution. So there was a lot of press, a lot of newspapers that were writing about this that were upset at what was happening in Nauvoo. And since the... Uh, the, the the officer serving the warrant, and, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now, uh, since he left with the warrant, um, to take it one step even further, in Nauvoo they said, look, we don't even have a warrant for your arrest anymore. He took the warrant with him. So they let Porter and Joseph Smith go. And Joseph Smith's not going to wait around to find out what happens. He, he goes into hiding for the next couple of months, and that's the context in which we have these next two revelations. Doctrine and Covenants sections 127 and 128 are letters that Joseph Smith wrote to the church while in hiding, while they were trying to sort out the whole assassination attempt of Governor Boggs. And it's a really cool story how this finishes. So... I'll finish up this story about this assassination attempt and where this ends with the law and uh, and then circle around back to these these two letters that Joseph Smith wrote, amazing letters about baptism for the dead and revealing this new wondrous doctrine to the church in more detail and instruction. So Joseph Smith in hiding for so long, trying to figure out the best way to take care of this. It's not going to go away if he just hides forever. He's got to deal with it. And he's speaking with his attorneys, speaking with other members of the uh, leaders of the church. He decides the best course of action is to actually go and get ahead of this rather rather than wait to where he's finally posseed up and run down and, and driven to Missouri. They take their court, their trial, their 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 complaint, the, um, the, the whole issue to a federal court in Illinois, to the judge, and they go and speak and say, hey, we want this tried here in federal court. And the prosecuting attorney for what happened, as this goes to court, tells the judge, whoa, 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 
the federal court has nothing to do with this crime. This was a crime that was committed in Missouri, and they need to be extradited to Missouri, to, and, and this needs to be settled in Missouri. And Joseph Smith's attorney stands up and, and, and tells the judge, whoa, 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 Missouri is appealing to federal law to extradite Joseph Smith. This is a federal issue. In fact, the federal court is the only court that can hear this and decide whether or not that Joseph Smith should be extradited over there. So he makes a great, uh, a, a great claim for the power of the federal court to be able to hear this. And then moreover, they, they point out Joseph Smith in this, in this uh, extradition request, in the wording there, it says Joseph Smith was a fugitive from the law, that he had fled. And the attorney points out, there are witnesses all over the place. Joseph Smith was not in Missouri at any time that this happened. So how could he possibly be a fugitive? How could he be fleeing justice if he never was there in the first place to run away? If he wasn't there, then he didn't run away to Illinois to hide. He's been in Illinois the whole time, so he's not a fugitive. So the judge, after hearing both arguments, looked at it, and, and he ruled that absolutely the federal court has power to hear this case and, and determine if there's, there's a reason to extradite Joseph Smith. So, yes, we, we do have the ability to hear this case and to make a decision, to make a ruling. And then furthermore, he agrees, Joseph Smith can't be a fugitive if he never fled. If he was never in Missouri and never ran out of Missouri to escape justice, then he was never a fugitive from Missouri. So, so he agrees on that account. And he takes us a step further because the, the affidavit said Joseph Smith was an accessory to crime. Not that he was suspected on it or that he is. And, and this was very uh, upsetting to the judge. He says Boggs and the governor there, they cannot act as judges and pass judgment on Joseph Smith. Where is the facts? Where are the evidence? How come the affidavit isn't citing any evidence or any facts? And how come they're passing judgment saying that he is an accessory when he hasn't been convicted of anything? If they want to question him in regards to something, but he is not, he hasn't, he is innocent until proven guilty, and there is no, there is no facts, there is no evidence. And and so he threw the case out, and, and Joseph Smith uh, wins the day. And, and, and doesn't have to stand trial for it. Um, on the other hand, uh, Porter Rockwell is arrested in, in Missouri, and to keep him from escaping, uh, the, government, or the governor places 50 armed guards around the jail where he is, is being held, and he spends a, a number of months there. And you remember, Porter Rockwell is the same one who smuggled augers and pry bars into the Prophet Joseph Smith when he was in Liberty Jail. I, to this day, I don't know how he does this. And, and maybe this is just part of the legend that is Porter Rockwell. Somehow, with 50 armed guards and whatever the case may be, and, and, and trying to stand trial for attempting to assassinate Governor Boggs, he escapes. He escapes, and it's a right around the wintertime. Uh, Joseph Smith is in Nauvoo having a Christmas party with the Saints, and, and Porter Rockwell comes in unshaved, uh, hair just all wild, it, it just just like this wild man, to the point where Joseph Smith doesn't even recognize him and, and kind of kicks, kicks him out of the party until he realizes it's Porter Rockwell, in which case this is the, the, the famous prophecy that says, if you don't cut your hair, then, and how does he put it, neither a knife shall stab you or a bullet shall wound you. You'll, you'll, you'll be protected for the rest of your life. And so Porter Rockwell never did cut his, his hair or his beard. He becomes kind of this Samson, if you will, of, of, of church history. And, boy, he, he is, he's been in a lot of gunfights since this time. He, he served—one uh, of his jobs was to ride shotgun on the stagecoach. And the, and the reason they called it shotgun, and to this day when you say you're riding shotgun, shotgun was the person that would sit up front with the driver— and, and carry the gun to, to shoot anyone that would attack him. That was the, the job, was the person up front that was armed to protect the cargo and the people that were being transported. So he wrote, Shotgun is a stagecoach. He was a U.S. Marshal, and, and he's credited with more kills in, in his time as a lawman 
than Wyatt Earp, than Doc Holliday, than, than a bunch of those uh, famous Western lawmen combined. So he's kind of got an interesting, colorful history, but he, he eventually is acquitted. There's not enough evidence. There's no evidence that he had anything to do with the assassination attempt on, on Lilburn Boggs, aside from uh, John C. Bennett and, and people, just rumors. That, that's all they have. There's nothing that places him there. There's nothing that, nothing that ties him to the crime. So they find they don't have enough evidence to ever take him to court for it. So they, they drop the charges. Um, however, because he escaped from jail, uh, he does get a warrant on his... Uh, he, does, he, he is wanted for, for escaping prison. That, that, that's the one thing that they, they do pursue, um, pursue him for. And, and if I remember right, if, sorry, if, I, if, I, if I'm saying this wrong, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the case that later he does stand trial for the assassination attempt of, of Governor Boggs, and, and he's acquitted. They, they find, him, find him not guilty. Anyhow, that's the, that's the legend and the going-ons of, of why Joseph Smith is in hiding. So as he is on the other side of the, the river, and sometimes they're in, in Nauvoo hiding out in houses to houses, he writes these letters. And, and just a few things I want to touch on with this. I, I, don't, have, I don't have Nate here keeping me on time, so if I, I'm going super over. Uh, I think we're doing all right. We'll, 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 we'll wrap this up here soon. But Doctrine and Covenants section 127, I love how Joseph Smith uh, says this. Um, as he's, he's, he's writing about, he says in the very end of verse 1, when I learn that the storm was fully blown over, then I will return to you again. So he can't go... And, and preach to them and be out in the open. He's in hiding. He's waiting for the storm to kind of blow over. This is before he goes and, and stands trial and becomes acquitted of, of, of everything that happened. But I love what he states in verse 2. As for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me, as the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life. And for what cause it seems mysterious, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world for some good end or bad, as you may choose to call it, judge ye for yourselves. God knoweth all these things, whether it be good or bad, but nevertheless, deep water is what I am wont to swim in. It has all become a second nature to me, and I feel like Paul to glory in tribulation, for to this day has the God of my fathers delivered me out of them all. And will deliver me from henceforth. For behold and lo, I shall triumph over all my enemies. For the Lord God has spoken it. Let all the saints rejoice therefore and be exceedingly glad. Joseph Smith was a very jovial person. He, he kind of breaks the mold of that time. This, this idea of piousness and seriousness. And, and you, you know, we talked about this earlier when... when when the, the people from Michigan had visited him and, and uh, he was studying German and, and she says, that's not, that's not something a prophet would do. And he stops and says, a prophet is only a prophet when acting as a prophet. And, and it, it, he, he's, he, I mean, he always says that he was maybe a little bit more lighthearted or, or, or carried away in the, having a good time. You know, he'd, he had a, a visitor come visit, uh, the, the the city that that was very pious was very uptight and 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 strict and observant and 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 this very somber person and he looks around at the fun and the enjoyment or the the relaxed attitude and the the joy and the gladness that the saints are having and he says well this is this is not what I would expect this is not uh, a people of God and Joseph Smith looks at him and tells him you look like you need to wrestle maybe maybe let's wrestle loosen you up a little bit a little bit so he. He he is this he is this fun loving this kind this this person that would do anything for anyone, but just a fun enjoyable person to be around, and and yet you look at what he went through, and here he's being accused for a murder he had nothing to do with, from the guy that had just signed the extermination order and chased them out. It, it doesn't seem to end. He gets out, and they're still coming after him. He can't win. Uh, talking about when he was 14 and he says that he sees God and people that if they ought to have loved him, wouldn't they want to correct him? Instead, they ridicule him. They torment him from a young age all the way till now. And yet he is not bittered because of it. As he talks about this, 
Um, as for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me. The envy and wrath of man has been my common lot all the days of my life, and for what cause it seems mysterious. But God knoweth all things, and he says he's going to rejoice in it. He says, but nevertheless, deep waters is what I want to swim in. That, you know, that's, that's my lot in life, and, and I'm okay with it. It has become a second nature to me, and I feel to glory in tribulation. For behold, and lo, I shall triumph over my enemies, for the Lord God has spoken it. Let all the saints rejoice, therefore. Therefore, if this man, who everyone hates him, who, who his friends betrayed him, and, and you want to talk about friends betraying him, you know, I, I forgot to really go into detail on this. And when we talked about Doctrine and Covenants section 121, when, when he wrote out with General Hinkle from, from his own militia, to, uh, the Caldwell Militia in Missouri, to meet with General Lucas to try to make peace, and Hinkle betrayed him. He bought his house from Hinkle, George Hinkle, the, the, the leader of the Nauvoo, not the Nauvoo, the Caldwell Militia. Hinkle had made a deal with Lucas to turn Joseph Smith in on the promise that Lucas would kill Joseph Smith. Why did that matter? Because Hinkle, right after he turned and betrayed Joseph Smith, this is kind of the Judas, if you will, of, of, of Christ in, in his time, comparing it that way. Hinkle, after he betrayed Joseph Smith, went back to Joseph's home where Emma and his kids were and kicked him out that night. They didn't even have a place to stay at night. She came in tears. Oh, whose, whose house was it? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but she, she was kicked out of her home. Hinkle took possession of it, stole his horse, stole everything, and then sold it. Joseph Smith saw his horse riding through Missouri and said, Wait, that's my horse. That's my saddlebags. And, and he asked the guy, what, what, what goes on? And he said, well, I bought it from so-and-so who bought it from. And, and finds out Hinkle had betrayed him, not just, not just for anything, but almost like Christ, this, this idea that he was betrayed for 30 pieces of civil, silver. Hinkle betrayed Joseph Smith so he could kick the Smiths out of the home and repossess it. He, he profited off of them, selling it to him, and then he stole it back and took all of their goods. And you almost look at Hinkle and say, well, you know, Maybe, maybe from his perspective, he's thinking, if this is a prophet of God, surely he'll see this coming and God will warn him and, and he won't fall into it or the Lord will deliver him. And, and if he's not, then I'm doing the world a favor by getting rid of somebody who's, who's not a prophet. Maybe that's what Judas is thinking. If this is the son of God, surely I can't foil God's plans. God's going to deliver him and he'll be saved. And then everyone will know and believe just like me. And if not, then I'm doing the world a favor by getting rid of this, this imposter. That's, I, I think... I think of Hinkle in terms of this Judas and, and the role that he played. But Joseph Smith, who's gone through his friends betraying him, through, through the being tarred and feathered, watching close people turn on him, going through everything, and he says, hey, I'm okay with it. They're not going to take my happiness away. And if I can rejoice in that, then let the saints, let all the saints rejoice, therefore. We go through hard things. Just like they said at the very beginning, for those as saying to be saints, you're going to go through hard things, whether it's external pressures or internal pressures, as we try to struggle with being content with who we are, as we try to struggle with, with, with trying to become holy with our own happiness. Let us rejoice. If we're called to swim in deep waters, let us glory in our tribulation because we're going to learn from it and we're going to be better because of it. And if Joseph Smith, who went through all of these things, who just barely comes out of being lectured by God in Liberty Jail, um, that Job went through even worse. And, and what does he say? He tells Joseph Smith, at least your friends haven't turned on you. You're not like Job, whose friends were told him to curse God and die. And yet, here we go, we see Hinkle. And now we're going to see John Bennett. And we're going to see William Law. And he's going to go through those things. But then he says, what about Christ? Art thou greater than he? He descended below all things. And yet, 
Was Christ a bitter man because of it? Look at how much Jesus loves us despite what he went through. And look at how pleasant Joseph Smith and jovial he was despite what he's going through. And the lesson I take away from this is, is the same lesson taught by, uh, who was it, Victor Frankl in the concentration camps who says, you know, they can take away my, my, my liberty to move around. They can take away my freedom, if you will. They can confine me. They can take every way away, everything away, but they can't take away my choice to be happy, to be who I am going to be. That is something that I still have. And he talked about that, that, that there's a space between a stimulus and response, wherein lies the freedom of man, and that you can choose to act or react. And if you're reacting, they steal your freedom. But if you are ability, have the ability to act and be happy, despite what's happening outside of you, they can't take that away. And yet he's going through these, these terrible things in a concentration camp, very similar to what we see with Joseph Smith, and yet he still had a way to be happy. So as we struggle and we go through afflictions, I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know how to say this because I, I'm not you and I'm not going through what you're going through. But but Christ didn't let it consume him. He found a way to love and to be happy. And Joseph Smith wasn't consumed by what he went through. And Viktor Frankl wasn't consumed by what he went through. Let's find a way to rejoice and appreciate the, the, the tribulation and let it teach us like a fire that refines. Let it burn all of our impurities away, but let it not scar us. Let us come out still optimistic and jovial and pleasant as, as, these, as these impurities are being burned and refined away from us. It's a powerful lesson, and, and it's a hard thing to talk about. I, I, know, I know some people really struggle finding happiness or, or finding contentment, and I don't know if I have the right solution. Uh, and maybe the key, as I look at these gentlemen that went through this, as I look at Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ and, and Viktor Frankl, maybe, maybe that key is love. Finding a love when, when it's hard to love the people that are they're persecuting you, maybe start by loving God and loving yourself and, and let that love build and, and start to, to try to, to love and forgive even those who despitefully use you for what it's worth. Um, but I, I just, I admire Joseph Smith a lot. And, and to see his attitude and him come through this, as much as he went through to the point where he is going to be martyred, and yet it didn't taint him. It didn't make him bitter. It didn't turn him against people. It didn't make him unpleasant to be around. He was still Joseph Smith, the integrity of that man to come out through everything unscathed and better for it. Just all the more appreciation I have for him. Anyhow, let's um, let's keep going. And this is, I, I think it's interesting as we talk about these two sections the baptism for the dead, the work for the dead. Um, Joseph Smith has had to preside over funerals. Uh, we have the King Follett sermon around this time period. Uh, you're coming out of Missouri where so many saints had died or were killed, and, and death is something that's on their mind. And Joseph Smith had to preside at several funerals. And so you almost look at this transitionary period, and as their mindset is, is starting to focus on, on now they're dead, and what about the dead? And now you start to see this revelation that the dead can be redeemed, and here is how the dead can be redeemed, and the ordinances for the dead. And it was such a, a light and breath of fresh air from this oppressing time period that the saints really embraced it. They loved it. And to go from a time period where they were building the temple before, and they were out of in their poverty and their their destitute and the afflictions and what they were going through when they were asked to build the Kirtland Temple. And we know they were chastened for taking so long to do it and, and struggling to get this temple built. Now all of a sudden the, the, the prophet's commanding them from the God to build the Nauvoo Temple so that they can save their dead. This idea of saving their dead and baptizing people that they love, their, their ancestors, their parents, their siblings, whoever that had died who hadn't heard the restored gospel, that there was hope for them, 
a message that wasn't taught in other churches. Boy, this lit them a fire. They were so, and as Joseph Smith says, should we not go on in so great a cause? Let us save our dead. This was a rallying cry that the saints rallied around, and they built that Nauvoo temple, and, and they didn't have to be reminded, and they didn't have to be chased to do it. They were motivated by this idea of saving their dead, redeeming the dead, and, and they let this push them forward. Um, all right, I'm, 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 at, I'm at an hour. Um, I'll, I'm, I'm going to try to wrap this up. As we talk about um, this... Uh, some of the great things, Joseph Smith, if you can read Doctrine and Covenants, section 128, and this to me is, is one of the greatest letters I have ever read of, of all time, as he describes the work of redeeming the dead from a scriptural standpoint. It's marvelous. As he talks about the books that were opened in the book of Revelation, um, I'm going to read, uh, Joseph Smith says, it's in verse 6, Further, I want you to remember that John the Revelator was contemplating this very subject in relation to the dead when he declared, as you will find recorded in Revelation 20:12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and their books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. And see, this, this exposition, Joseph Smith says in verse 7, you will discover in this quotation that the books were opened and another book was opened which was the book of life. But the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Consequently, the books spoken of must be the books which contain the record of their works and refer to the records which are kept on the earth. And the book which was the book of life is the record which is kept in heaven, the principle agreeing precisely with the doctrine which is commanded you in the revelation concerning, um, contained in the letter which I wrote to you previous to my leaving my place. That in all your recordings, it may be recorded in heaven. And he talks about the importance of recording the records. Here we keep earthly records, and if we do that, then it will be recorded in heaven, and the dead will be judged by the earthly records which are kept, which go aligned with the spiritual records, and this, this heavenly book, the book of life, and the earthly book, and the importance of having a recorder, and having a witness, and doing these ordinances. And, and initially, I mean, this was new, and anyone could be baptized for anyone. Women were being baptized for men, men were being baptized for women, and anyone was being baptized for just about anyone that died. And, and later, Brigham Young is going to try to bring a little bit of order to this, as Joseph Smith didn't live long enough to fully realize the entire doctrine of the salvation of the dead. But Joseph Smith goes on to quote other scriptures um, uh, Matthew 16, 18 through 19, as he talks about Peter and the rock of the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 46, 47, and 48. And so he goes through and uh, then talks about Malachi and the last uh, chapters of, of Elijah. And he, he quotes all of the scriptural prefet, um, precedents for the doctrine of the salvation for the dead. It's a marvelous letter. And, and as he finishes it, um, shall we not go on in so great a cause? And and there was maybe one more thing I want to mention from this, and then I promise I'll wrap this up. This is something I have been trying to understand and chase down for a very long time, and I have not found any more on it. If any of you listening out there know or have heard um, where, where I can find out more about this, please let me know. Uh, verse 21 um, and again, the voice of God in the chamber of old Father Whitmer. So he's talking about, uh, let me back up just a minute. Verse 20, and again, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Camorra. Moroni, an angel from heaven, declaring the fulfillment of the prophets, the book to be revealed. A voice of the Lord in the wilderness of Fayette, Seneca County, declaring the three witnesses uh, to bear record of the book. The voice of Michael on the banks of the Susquehanna, detecting the devil when he appeared as an angel of light. The voice of Peter, James, and John in the wilderness between Harmony, Susquehanna County, and Colesville, Broome County, on the Susquehanna River, declaring themselves as possessing the keys of the kingdom and the dispensation of the fullness of times. And again, the voice of God in the chamber of Old Father Whitmer. So he's talking about all the voices of the Restoration um, and, and the, the, the power of the Restoration. What I'm 
what what I don't understand here, I, I understand Peter, James, and John bringing back the Melchizedek priesthood. I understand Moroni, an angel from heaven, declaring the fulfillment of the prophets. I understand uh, a lot of these things. But when it says, um, the voice of Michael on the banks of the Susquehanna detecting the devil when he appeared as an angel of light, I'm like, wait a second. When did that happen? What story am I missing? What, what are the details around that? When did Michael detect the devil as an angel of light. And what was the devil as an angel of light doing to try to deceive Joseph Smith? What There's a story behind this somewhere, and I have not been able to track it down. This is the only reference to what happened there that I can see in Doctrine and Covenants 128. So if anyone knows the story behind that, please elaborate. I, I, would, love, I would love to hear that. Anyways, um, maybe the most fitting way to end this as Joseph Smith does it so powerfully. Um, Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on and on to the victory. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Let the earth bring fo- break forth into singing. Let the dead speak forth anthems of eternal praise to the King of Emmanuel, who hath ordained before the world was, and which would enable us to redeem them out of their prison, for the prisoners shall go free. And boy, if anyone knows about prisoners going free and how liberating that feels, it would be Joseph Smith. So, thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I hope you've uh, hope you've enjoyed this lesson. Uh, feel feel free to dive into these scriptures. Wonderful, powerful sections as as Joseph Smith is writing, uh, waiting for waiting for God to deliver him from from yet another. In fair, unfair inquiry into to something he he had nothing to do with. Um, all right, we we're just about done uh, with Doctrine and Covenants. Kind of sad we're 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 running out of time and we're running out of sections, but it's been very fulfilling to me. Again, our email is hi at um, weeklydeepdive.com. Shoot, shoot us a Shoot us a message. Let us know what you've liked, what you've learned, or, or anything that you've kind of gained or appreciated from this year's study. And uh, we'll we'll see you next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about... Just a second, I'm pulling it up. Uh, this week was Doctrine and Covenants 125 through 128. And next week... Oh, man, it's taking me so long. We're going into Doctrine and Covenants sections 129 through 132. So some powerful sections coming up there. 132 is, is amazing as we talk about uh, marriage, sealing, and, and the, the ability to, to be as God. So thanks for listening. Until next week. See ya. I get better, Nate. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>